Hello and welcome to Dragon's Demise, the podcast about what happens on, around, and behind the tabletop. I'm your host, Greg B., joined as always by Jacob. Hello. And today we're going to be reviewing Scythe, which we talked about last week. We're both extremely excited to be looking at that. But first, let's talk about what we've been playing lately. Yeah, first of all, we put in another game of Time Stories. We did, which was super exciting. We were able to, before last recording session, just sit down, you, me, your roommate, our core three. Yes. And play through the Marcy Mystery. Mm-hmm. Marcy Case. The Marcy, the Marcy case. case. Which was the second adventure that was released for Time Stories. It was interesting. It was a little bit different. Obviously, it took place in a different setting. Yeah. We were in uh, kind of middle America, 1992, mm-hmm. instead of turn of the 20th century France. Mm-hmm. But it was still, you know, the same core mechanics, the same really well-designed system. And I think this actually, too, really showcased the flexibility of the system. Because instead of having social interactions, fighting, and searching i think was the investigation was the third one in the original thing this time we had ranged combat melee combat and searching Mm -hmm. so you know you can take these same core components you've got these dice you've got colored tokens and the fact that the setting and the story gets built around those means that you can basically just do whatever you want and reskin it from time to time this whole adventure pretty much had a different feel to it in general whereas the first one we were doing very much an investigation trying to put together these puzzles in this one it was more the time management aspect that was more important there weren't really that many tricky puzzles i mean there's at least one thing that we still haven't even figured out (laughs) but we managed to get through the game without that either way there was fewer of those kinds of puzzles there were still definitely some Parts that were, you know, you had to try to guess, try to do this. But I think there was a much more of a focus on, as our commanding officer said, optimize, optimize, optimize. So we had to, like, optimize our time. We planned out in the, in the third run our session, like, pretty much exactly how we're going to do it, how we're going to get the best time and everything like that. We did. By the time we made it to the third run, we really took that message to heart. We were optimizing those those actions like nobody's business i think we still had half of our temporal units left by the time we finished the run so yeah. you know it took us a little while to get going but mm-hmm. once we i think retooled yeah. our expectations because we obviously this is only the second thing mm-hmm. we came into it expecting okay we have to go everywhere we have to do everything and investigate and figure out the mystery yeah. when really it was just about figure out the right path blitz it yes exactly and just as a comparison, the last time we played Time, time Stories, I believe that we were in safe mode, meaning that we went past the uh, expiration of the time units by yeah. like around 15 out of the 30 time units that we had at the beginning. This time, having 15 units of the time units that we had at the beginning left on the third run shows just how different these games played. Oh, for sure. And the other thing was that there was much more of a focus here on combat. Yeah, with two different types of combat, melee versus ranged, you had kind of the noise management. I commented that it was a lot like Dead of Winter. Yes. Uh, given, you know, each time you fire a gun, you add a noise token, and if you get too many noise tokens, you have an encounter on the street. But yeah, it was much more of a combat, fast-paced type of adventure, yeah. which, again, is really exciting in terms of the variability and the flexibility of the system. So I can't mm-hmm. wait till we play A Prophecy of Dragons, yeah. which will be our first alternate timeline adventure, and it will be, hopefully, unique in all the right ways. Exactly. I'm really looking forward to it. 
we also got to play Karmaka. We did. Another really gorgeous game. So Karmaka uh, is a game in which you start out as a dung beetle, and your uh, goal is to achieve transcendence Mm -hmm. by playing through progressive lives, turns on the wheel, and ascending each time. So you go from dung beetle to serpent to wolf to ape, and then finally to transcendence. Yeah. And it has a really interesting aspect. So we, we are discussing about what this compares to. And we did say that it compares slightly to Munchkin in that it is a race to the top. And you're using cards that are in your hand and in your deck and tr- playing them to either help yourself or hurt other people. The difference being that, A, you can't kick people down any levels. You can just keep them from going up a level if you have the right card at the right time. B, you're only interacting with the people to your right and left, and when you have four players, that does not mean everyone in the game. You have one person across from you who you cannot interact with. Which really was frustrating last game when you won and I was sitting across from you and couldn't interact or do anything to stop you, but that's neither here nor there. Exactly. The third aspect that's really unique about this game is when a card is played on you, you can go ahead and take that card and put it into your future life and serve it right back up on a platter to the person who played it at you. Karma. It's a really <laughs> it's a really unique mechanic and it's really well designed both in terms of mechanically, you mm-hmm. know, it's it's very elegant. You just when somebody plays an ability on you, you snatch it up and put it in your future life. You get to use that ability later, but then also thematically. Mm-hmm. Karma. The whole game is about living not necessarily a good life because there are cards that are, you know, bad, mm-hmm. but a life that is pure the way that you level up actually when you have cards in your deeds in front of you you can only score cards of a particular color yes and then the colors are based kind of generally around attitudes Mm -hmm. and philosophies towards life so red are very aggressive blue are very mischievous and Mm -hmm. sneaky and then green are kind of the archetypal good guy healing and Mm -hmm. bounty and plentifulness and all those sorts of things so you don't necessarily have to be good you just have to be consistent and yes. you know be true to whatever that your life is at that point. Exactly. The cards themselves, you can use them in three different ways. You have a hand of cards, and normally you start with six cards total for each life. And you usually will draw cards, like draw a card at the beginning of the turn. You start the game, four in your hand, two in your deck. Draw one card at the beginning of your turn, play a card. You can play it either to your future life, which means you put it face down in a pile. That's going to be your hand when you begin your next life. You can play it to your deeds, which means you don't use the ability, but you use whatever color and number that you have on that card. So it could be a three of greens or something like that. And that is going towards your reincarnation. And then the last way that you can play it is you can play it as an action, pretty much which is using the bottom ability text that you have on there that can either help you get more cards, use the card on someone else, uh, all different ways like that. With using those cards like that, you have to get rid of all six of your cards or any cards that you have at the time. That is when the transcendence happens one turn after you get rid of the last card. Right, so it leaves sort of a little bit of an opportunity for if people see that you've gone out, they can either, you know, they can ruin deeds that are in front of you so that you don't have enough points to ascend to the next level. Mm -hmm. They can add cards to your deck so that you actually can't go out. Like, there are all sorts of ways to to mess with people. Mm -hmm. But like you mentioned, it 
avoids some of the just the cutthroat negativity of Munchkin mm-hmm. because one, you can't actually force people to go down a level. You can only prevent them from going mm-hmm. up a level. Yeah. And then two, there's always that sense in the back of your mind that like, uh-oh, if I screw this person over, it's not just a grudge that they're going to hold against me. They're going to take this potentially really powerful card that I use against them, and they're going to hit me with it next life. So yeah. it, it really leads to a lot more consideration, I think, yeah. and just a, a more elegantly designed game than just the scramble that is Munchkin. I agree, and I think that this is one of the games that really the theme fits the gameplay 100%. Absolutely. After playing this game, I couldn't think of any mechanic that would better embody karma than taking the card that was used against you and then possibly being able to use it against someone else. Yeah, they did an absolutely fantastic job of merging form and function with that, which, you know, given our conversations with Ben given our conversations with the designers at Washington, mm-hmm. that was a concern that came up, or not yeah. necessarily a concern, but obviously a consideration yeah. when you're designing a game that factors into it. How do you look for opportunities to do that? And I think they pulled it off beautifully. I agree. And then the last game that we've been playing lately is Tiny Epic Western. Right. Yet another one from the makers of Tiny Epic Galaxies. This time, much more micro, not building a galaxy, instead just trying to be the biggest, baddest boss in a little western town. Pretty much. And it's an interesting game because it it combines worker placement and poker. And poker. There's this really interesting mechanic whereby you deal out cards, and it's not a a standard 52-card deck. They have four different suits. There's steer, horseshoes, teepees, and hats, 10-gallon hats, of course, Mm -hmm. because, you know. You got it. It's Western. And then they run from one to five. Mm -hmm. And so at the beginning of each turn, you deal those out in between the six locations, and that forms kind of the the field of cards. Mm -hmm. And then you also get dealt cards to your hand, Mm -hmm. one of which you choose. And then during the resolution phase, after you've placed your workers, you get to reveal the card from your hand, compare it against everyone else who's on that particular location that you're Mm -hmm. at, to see who wins the hand for that location, which can affect how much influence that you gain or whether or not you can buy buildings from that location. Yeah. And the other thing is that there is a neutral player in there for any uncontested locations, which is a random card placed that you don't get to see at the beginning when everyone's planning, just as if it were another player, and that gets revealed, and then whichever locations are not contested, you have to beat the neutral player. Right. And so there's really no free lunch. You're always going to have to go against someone for the hand. It's just a matter of whether you're going against an opponent who could potentially steal the stuff from you or just against a neutral who you don't get the stuff, but then again, neither does anybody else. Exactly. And so it's interesting, and I, I like this kind of mechanic. It's similar in a way to Darkrock Ventures, actually, in that you are placing your workers based on certain results that are out in the field and what you have in your hand. So if I had a two of hats and there were two places that I could either get a flush or a straight, I would place my workers there even if it's slightly suboptimal to what I would want to do because I'm more likely to actually win those, get all of the benefits rather than trying and failing to win a different one that would then not give me those benefits. And you know I might be able to or might not be able to actually buy the building that I wanted. Right. It definitely introduces multiple layers of complexity, but also of objectives. You know, Mm -hmm. there is that consideration of 
do I want to go for the sure thing or do I want to risk it and probably not end up with anything like I did? I couldn't for the life of me win a hand of poker tonight. Just wasn't in the cards. And the other thing that you can do is the <laughs> The other thing that you can do is also dual people for locations. And what that means is that you get the first pick in that location if you win. So if someone has put a meeple in a location on a space that you want, you can duel them for it. And that involves rolling dice. They have these interesting looking bullet dice, which are a variation of the uh, cylindrical dice, if you've seen those. And that's just you roll them and instead of being a six-sided dice with six uh, sides on a cube, you have six sides on a cylinder that rolls and hopefully is random. Right. You roll those, you compare them, the loser actually gets to use one type of power to re-roll that if they'd like. And then you can also add your card to that. But that also reveals your card, which then lets other people see what you have and plan accordingly. So there's a lot of things going into that aspect of the game as well. The benefits are nice because then you get to use whatever the power is that, that you just kept someone else from using. If you win the hand. Right. Well, that's the thing, too, is that some of the rewards are based on whether or not you win the hand. Because in addition to having a winner's pot for each location, mm -hmm. you can either take one type of influence immediately mm -hmm. or gain two of that type of influence if you win the hand. So, again, it's just a game full of different types of gambling. Yeah. And it's a really fun game, I think. We played it with just two people. I think it's definitely something that's going to benefit from more players. It can play up to four, and I, I would love to play it with four, because I got a little bit salty about our two-player game, yeah. but it's it's got lots of uniqueness to it, and I want to give it another chance. So Exactly. I'm definitely looking forward to playing it with a few more players. Me too. And that's what we've been playing. Just a quick note before we get into our review, just wanted to mention that none of our reviews are sponsored. We are not getting paid to give our opinion or anything like that. These are purely our opinions and have been for all the reviews that we have done to date. So if that changes, we will make sure to let you know when we have a sponsored review. But until then, all of these are our own opinions, not influenced by the manufacturers, producers, or anything like that. And now, let's step into the alternate history and review Scythe. So, we played Scythe a couple weeks ago, and it was amazing. You know, there's been so much hype about this game. Even before it was a game, I loved the artwork. I was mm -hmm. super stoked to get to play it, and it absolutely did not let me down. Quick overview. In Scythe, you choose one of currently five with the potential for two more factions, and you control those factions as they attempt to control a small swath of territory in Eastern Europa yes. and emerge victorious. In this context, victory being whoever has the most money at the end of the game. Mm -hmm. Now, money can be earned throughout the course of the game, but everything that you do throughout the game, whether it's accomplishing an objective, whether it's winning a combat, whether it's completing all of your upgrades, building your buildings, everything at the end of the game gets converted back into money. Mm -hmm. So really, you've got all these different channels that you can activate in order to try to achieve your goal. And it's really, really fun to try to balance eight 
nine different aspects of gameplay. Exactly. And the gameplay is extremely diverse. It is, on first glance, you would think that it would be a war game of sorts. I certainly did. But when you get into it, when you start playing it, fighting is a very small part of the ways that you can get victory points. A lot of it is actually from worker placement, from economy, from upgrading, from getting your faction to the places where it needs to go. Controlling territory, for example, that you can get points at the end of the game. The game itself is very, well, beautiful, first of all, but we'll get into that later. The gameplay itself is focused on your faction and also your player mat. So you have your faction, which gives your mechs and one special ability that you you can do. Each faction has a completely different special ability. Honestly, all of the different abilities on that faction map are unique to that one faction. Oh, absolutely. I will amend that. There's one act, one ability that every faction has, and that is speed. Speed. But other than that, they are all different. So even River Walk, which is the ability that allows you to cross rivers, appropriately, is different per, for each faction because you can only cross onto certain spots. So the Germans or Saxony, technically, they can cross onto, I believe, mountains. Mountains and forests. Yes, while the Crimeans can go onto fields and, I believe, it's villages. Each one is slightly different, and that asymmetry in this game is key i believe definitely there's a lot of a lot of really well balanced asymmetry so from the kind of tactical combat standpoint that's where your faction differences come in Mm -hmm. most of the abilities relate to combat all of the mech upgrades relate to combat obviously Mm -hmm. but then in terms of your economy that can be diversified because of your player mat which is dealt out separately from your Mm -hmm. faction mat so with your player mat that's where you're going to have your four different types of actions Each of those actions has a top and a bottom. Mm -hmm. So the top actions are going to be things like bolster, which you can use to increase your power. They're going to be things like trade, which you can use to get goods from the supply. Mm -hmm. Produce, which you can use to get goods from your own hexes that you control. Mm -hmm. Or move, which you can use to move your people around Mm -hmm. the board or to gain money. So those are the top level actions. And those top level actions are different placements on each player map. Right, which doesn't seem like it would be that big a deal, but the bottom row actions, which are things like upgrade, enlist, which gives you permanent bonuses to various things based on how you allocate your food, Mm -hmm. build buildings, which gives you permanent bonuses based on which buildings you want to put on which hexes, all of those permanent upgrades are static across the bottom row. Mm -hmm. So you can have some really interesting economic differences if you have a bolster top action, which is tied to a build top action, as opposed to a bolster top action, which is tied to a deploy bottom action. Yep. And not only that, but also the costs are different. So the top action, even though they they are in different spaces, the costs are always the same for everyone. The bottom actions, they have different costs as well as different benefits for people. So one faction can have a mech begin at costing three iron, go down through upgrades to costing one iron and give you two coins whenever you use that action versus someone else who could have a deploy action which will cost them four iron at the beginning and then that goes down decreases to maybe three or two but doesn't give them any coins because their player mat 
is not focused on mechs. Instead, they might have very cheap buildings or very cheap enlistment. And because these are selected at random, and you're not really matching between the uh, the faction and the player mat, this gives you many, many different styles of gameplay. It certainly leads to a lot of variability and, again, replayability, because each time you play, you're probably going to have a different faction, and you're probably going to have a different player mat. So even if you play you know, the Saxons two games in a row, it's extremely unlikely that you'll have exactly the same game because you're going to have a different player mat. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely something that encourages you to learn the fundamentals and be good at all aspects of the game because even if you know, oh, I want to be the Saxons who their powers are pretty warlike, pretty aggressive, you can't count on being able to deploy your mechs quickly and efficiently because Mm -hmm. you don't know what your player mat's going to be. So you really have to be able to roll with the punches that are dealt to you at the beginning of the game. Mm -hmm. Not only that, but of course the conditions in the game change a lot throughout the game. Because people will upgrade at different points, people will build different buildings at different times, and you just have to roll with that. So you're trying to you know, become a warlike faction, but your neighbor is also becoming warlike and they're able to get there quicker than you. So you have to maybe focus more on defense, focus more on mobility and get yourself out into different places that you weren't really expecting to go, but need to in order to you know, get the, the right points, get the right resources, because they were able to establish a military presence early on. Right. And one of the things that we haven't talked about that makes finding a military balance, even though military isn't the primary focus of the game, so important, is that when you generate resources, rather than going into your personal supply mm-hmm. or your hand, those resources stay on the map, initially in the territory that you produce them in, but they can also be moved around by workers, mechs, and characters, which are the three types of units. Mm-hmm. So your supplies that you're going to be using to deploy mechs, to build buildings, to do all of those really important game-winning conditions mm-hmm. are on the field, which means if your opponent wins a combat in that territory, they now control those resources and they can spend them. So it's a very precarious position and you have to balance defense with economy. It doesn't let you just focus on one at the absolute expense of the other. Exactly. You really have to work on all of the aspects in order to win. But there are very many strategies to go for it. You can still change the balance depending on what's going on in the game. One of the things that I want to talk about is the roles of the different pieces. So you have the workers, who are the only ones who can actually produce on squares. So when you use your produce action, you have to produce on spaces that have your workers. You can't produce on somewhere that has your mech only, or somewhere that has your actual character piece. The mechs are able to move and fight. That's their biggest thing. And as you build them, they get upgraded. So you have four mechs total. They never get destroyed once they're built. And you gain upgrades to all mechs as soon as you build one, two, three, or four. Those upgrades also work on your character. Your character is the one that can move around the map, and that's where you get a little bit of a cool narrative aspect to the game. They get to go and visit encounters. And these encounters are cards that you draw from the deck that have beautiful artwork by uh, Jakub Rozalski on them. And then they have three options. So it's as if you're looking onto the scene and this is what's happening in front of you. And you get to do one of these three things. There's usually one purely good and free option. And that one will just give you a small benefit just for getting to that place. 
you have one that costs a little bit more money but might give you a little bit of a higher benefit so if you have the money to spare it's usually a very good idea to use that one and then you have the third one which is usually pretty evil and this is what you do if you want to lose some popularity but gain a really good benefit so there's a really big balance going on there especially when you realize that popularity is what creates the scale for scoring the money at the end right and popularity is something that you really can't afford to ignore because popularity is rated on a scale from 0 to 18 mm -hmm. and every six points you transition into a new bracket of scoring so if you're in the 0 to 6 bracket at the end of the game you're going to get three points for each star and stars can be earned for various things like completing an objective winning a combat those are sort of the game things that you do Mm -hmm. You get two points for each territory you control, and you get one point for each two resources that you still control, mm -hmm. which is decent. But then if you go from the 0 to 6 bracket to the 7 to 12 bracket, each of those point ranges increases by one. Mm -hmm. And if you go up yet again, it increases once again by one. So if you can maximize your popularity, even if you maybe didn't get all your stars on the board before the end of the game, you can outscore someone who did simply because they had zero popularity and they weren't able to convert all of their objectives and all of their accomplishments into points. Exactly. So it really gives a very interesting mix of priorities because popularity might not be the most important at the beginning and in terms of gameplay itself and it might be that kind of thing that you're looking at and you're like, oh, I can really get this good benefit by just paying a little bit of popularity in the encounter. But then you have the, the point where at the end of the game, you have to start really focusing on getting that popularity back up. Whereas if someone else didn't do that and instead paid the money or used the small benefit, they're already higher than you on the popularity track. And they're just scoring at a, at a higher rate than you, even if they didn't get that benefit. So ending the game when the sixth star of one person is placed doesn't guarantee them the win in any way, shape or form. Oh, certainly not. So let's talk a little bit about the stars themselves. The stars themselves are given, as you said, for all these different in-game things. They can be your objectives, they can be building all of your upgrades, all of your mechs, all of your workers, all of your buildings, or enlisting all of your troops. And so they give you points at the end, and they're the highest point scoring group, but they can also only go up to six. As soon as the sixth one is placed, game's over. The next part of the scoring is the territory. So territory control just has to have at least one of any of your units in it. And this can also actually include buildings. So if a building is without another player's unit in it, you control that territory. If you're all spread out at the end of the game, it's probably the best, but it can also be risky because your workers can't really fight. So as soon as someone goes onto that square, they run away. That other person loses popularity unless they're Poland, but still. Right. It leaves you pretty vulnerable to, especially with some of the river walk or even the special movement mechanics, mm -hmm. where some factions can traverse lakes, some factions can traverse through special tunnels that they've created. Mm -hmm. You can really execute some good hit and run tactics. Yes. Or you can be the victim of hit and run tactics if you're not careful with your placement. Exactly. Now let's talk a little bit about the actual board. You commented last time that it was actually pretty small from what you expected. It was definitely much smaller than I expected. Like I said last episode, I was expecting much more of a risk type board where you know you've got not necessarily the whole world, but even as it's represented a substantial number of territories. Whereas in this, there's really no elbow room. 
-hmm. You've kind of got your faction and you've got your three territory starting area. But after that, you're going to start coming into conflict with other people pretty much right away. Mm -hmm. And so that really forces you to kind of hit the ground running and get that engine online so that you can start competing in the center of the field. Now, one thing that we haven't talked about is really the centerpiece of the lore, if not the game, and that's the factory. Mm -hmm. So the factory is located in the exact center of the map, right in between the network of tunnels and right in between all of the starting areas. Mm -hmm. The factory counts as three territories if you control it at the end of the game. But more importantly, if you move your character to the factory, you get to draw what is effectively a fifth action card that allows you to do a really unique, really powerful thing on your turn that no one else can do. Mm -hmm. So at the beginning of the game, you lay out a number of those fifth action cards face down equal to the number of players plus one. The first person who gets their character to the factory gets to look at those, choose one, put the rest back. So you're never going to be completely unable to benefit from visiting the factory, but it definitely behooves you to get there as fast as possible and give yourself the widest range of options because I really can't stress enough how powerful and unique some of these faction actions are. Not only that, but the earlier you get it, the more choices you have, especially in movement and mobility, because the factory action will always have one type of mobility action, which is different than any of your other regular mobility actions because it lets you do a double move rather than moving multiple people one of their moves. It just can change the balance of the game immediately as soon as you get the factory and you just rush there at the very beginning. Again, those hit and run tactics, it just allows you to move that much further, strike that much faster than anyone else. And I think that that's a pretty good overview of the game. That definitely covers the gameplay. One thing that we haven't touched on is, of course, the pieces, and we have to touch on the pieces. I know you kickstarted it. Yes. You got some pretty fancy plastic resource tokens mm-hmm. as well as metal coins. Yes. But even the base pieces that come with the game are really nice. Yeah. So based on the Kickstarter, I did go for the art collector's edition, so I will preface that. I got the realistic tokens, which uh, Stonemire Games does, and you can actually get these online if you you want to buy them. Uh, they're really cool. The ones that I have in here are the ones that look like a grain bag, an actual log. The iron pieces are literally made of metal and are really heavy, which is really cool. And then the last one is oil, which is just the oil barrels. All really cool. The metal coins always improve the feel of a game for me anyway. I love them. doesn't matter which game they come in. And all of these you can get on the website. Now, the base game itself still comes with the mechs, still comes with the characters, all these things beautifully sculpted. You get the pretty large board and like the player mats, I think, are one of the things that really struck me because they have the indented spaces for each one of the wooden cubes, each one of the different buildings and everything like that. So they're really nicely done. Everything fits perfectly in there and it it just adds to the experience of the gameplay it really does it's just it's the little touches that say hey we put effort into this we thought about this we're going to make sure that these pieces fit together really nicely and it's something that as pretty consistent gamers i think we appreciate yeah and goes without saying as i think i've talked about a few times the artwork of this game is absolutely phenomenal it is i think the most beautiful game in my entire collection oh wow 
it's my view of the artwork. I think that this is a game that was based on the artwork, not the other way around, and it really shows. The artwork is very much a centerpiece and has shown how the game was played and everything. It's just, it's amazing. Well, on that high note, Jacob, I'm going to give you a drum roll. What do you got? Well, I'm going to go for this definitely a buy it, and I'm going to put this on my top shelf. Oh, man. Busting out the top shelf once again. Yes. So this is going to be the second game I officially put on my top shelf, and... I think it fully deserves it as a game that really subverts all expectations. You expect a lot of these very hyped up games. You're not sure exactly how they come out. This one came out even better than expected. It meshes the little bit of combat in there, but balances that with a huge economy aspect and just all the different play styles, all the replayability, and especially all the theme in the game. To me, that makes this worthy of all the praise that I can give it. Well, there you go. I'm going to agree with you on the buy it. I'm going to hold off on the top shelf. Uh, it is a beautiful game, beautifully designed, and really subverts your expectations if you're just coming into it for the first time. I love the mechanics. I love the balance of the economy versus the military. And a little bit of a, a sweetener thrown on it does have a single player mode so if you can't find people to get to the table but you're just dying to play it you can always just bust it out and play it on your own which is something that given that i'm not in easy access to a lot of my gaming friends that i used to be is something that i really appreciate all right well thank you very much for joining us for our review of scythe We hope that you enjoyed this episode of Dragons and Mice, and tune in next time for our review of Crazy Carts.